Hey, good people. This is your NI Dom back with another reflection. And this is a personal journal for contemplative people looking to think, grow, and have impact in the world. So, hey, iconoclast, iconoclastic, iconoclast, iconoclastic. I'm going to be playing around with that word. That is my starting point, okay? That is my starting point. I want to read something to you. I'm going to read a couple of things to you. But the first thing I'm going to read to you is taken from the book, Gifts Differing, Understanding Personality Type by Isabel Briggs Myers with Peter B. Myers. On page 111, talking about introverted intuition supported by thinking. INTJs are the most independent of all the 16 types and take more or less conscious pride in that independence. Whatever their field, they are likely to be innovators. In business, they are born reorganizers. Intuition gives them an iconoclastic, excuse me, intuition gives them an iconoclastic imagination and an unhampered view of the possibilities. I'm going to read that last line once again. Intuition gives them an iconoclastic imagination and an unhampered view of the possibilities. So I'm going to do my disclaimers. Uh, I don't know where this reflection will take me, but I will tell you where I would like it to go. I want to talk about being a gifted INTJ8 um, as giftedness is a concept that I have been interested in past, let's say, five years now. But is the, it's a concept I have a great deal of insecurity about. And so as a result, I don't treat it or I undertreat it or I poorly treat it. Um, there was an episode I did last year, spring, late spring, early summer called giftedness. I went back and I listened to it. I maybe touched giftedness the last, what, five, 10 minutes. And thematically, everything that I talked about in that reflection could connect to giftedness. I really didn't deal with it. Um, over the course of this project, I have mentioned it, giftedness, I've defined it. But I truly haven't integrated it into my identity. And in the last two weeks, um, I have felt challenged to rethink my relationship to the concept of giftedness. Um personally challenged, inwardly challenged. And as I began to share that uh, inner push with my heart coach, she asked me to think about the interrelatedness between being gifted and being an eight in the Enneagram system. And that was enticing because I often think about the interrelatedness of being gifted and an INTJ. I've never thought about the interrelatedness of giftedness and the eight personality type in the Enneagram system. So when I read this sentence here, um, intuition gives them an iconoclastic imagination and an unhampered view of the possibilities. I began to think about the interrelatedness 
of all of it. INTJ-ness, eightness, and giftedness. And because I I haven't I've not written anything about this, I really even haven't done an, a full episode on a reflection on this. I have no idea if I'm going to be able to delve into this concept um, in any kind of meaningful way, but it is a concept that's on my mind. And I'm certain because of how it's on my mind, I will be writing about it in my dominant life. Now, let me just say this and I'm going to do my disclaimers. I did start a piece. I may have mentioned this to you guys before. I did uh, start an essay. I would say at the end of 2016, no, I'm sorry, the end of 2017, where I was trying to take each of these identities each of these concepts and treating them as identities, we've already talked about the complications of treating personality type as an identity, but I've also talked about the advantages of treating these um, types as identities. So at that time in my journey, I was just beginning to think about their interrelatedness, being gifted, being an INTJ. Um, I think at that time I was... I don't think I was looking at the Enneagram 8. I was looking at what's called an HSP, a highly sensitive person. I didn't pick up uh, the Enneagram until 2019, 2020. Yeah, 2019, 2020. So, but back five years ago when I started writing this essay, I was just, I was, I was, there was something knocking on the door about the uniqueness of me, the sharedness of me, the familiarity of me, the me part of the, the part of me that's normalized, yet the part of me that is distinctly different. And for whatever reason, probably intuitively speaking, I was drawn to the idea of intersecting these different identities together. What would happen if I brought them together? Um, and then in 2019, um, over the school year 2019, 2020, because I would take every weekend to go to the bookstore and I had this little composition book and I would outline a it's going to be my first non-academic book. So all of the pieces that I've ever written have been about education. And so I have a book that I want to write that is about, it's kind of like a memoir, kind of like a, I would say a memoir more than an autobiography, but because of who I am as, as a thinker, the memoir is going to be educational, right? I'm going to be, I'm going to bring in these theories um, and so whoever reads it will learn. It's going to be my story, but there's going to be a lot of learning um, inside of that. I, I, I'm certain of it. But I started outlining this book where I really wanted to uh, take that essay idea and flush it out as a book. But I haven't had the time to do it because of the other pieces that I've been writing. So I said all of that <laughs> to say that this whole idea of being intersected um, uh, being intersectional, which while we talk about intersectionality around race and gender, which is important, um, 
there's an intersectionality in which I'm interested in that really relates to the uniqueness of me. And I cannot do that. I cannot tell that story if I'm unable to sit in the idea of giftedness and be comfortable in it. And I'm extremely uncomfortable. Um, so in this particular reflection, it's not that I want to tackle giftedness at, as an isolated concept, but I want to start making my way to being able to see its value, giftedness, its value as a concept, as it relates to the uniqueness of me, uh, just as the uniqueness of me. And so when I read this line in this, in the book, um, Intuition gives them an iconoclastic imagination and an unhampered view of the possibilities. I saw the relatedness between giftedness, INTJ-ness, and eightness. And I want to try to find my way to have do some meaning making, even if it's only at an emerging level. So meaning making that's not comprehensive, that's not exhaustive, but more emergent. I want to give myself permission to just begin the conversation of intersecting those concepts. All right. All right. (laughs) If you're new to this project, this is a personal journal where I process my inner and my outer worlds. I do so by using personality theories, the two that I use the most, are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram. Pushing those two systems together, I identify as an INTJ8. I also identify as being an African-American woman from a lower socioeconomic background and from intergenerational trauma. I'm a trained and practicing social scientist and educator, and I have been doing this work for about 30 years. Half of that time has been in leadership. Um, Politically, I identify as a critical race feminist, which means I have an intellectual sensitivity to how power shows up in between, um, in, in, in how power shows up at the interpersonal level, particularly as it relates to social constructs such as race, class, gender, sexuality, and all of the above. Um, This project is unedited and it's unscripted. If you want to know more about it or me, feel free to visit my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. Okay? So if you are really new to the project and you heard me say... um, I, the two theories I use the most are the Myers-Briggs and the Enneagram and pushing those two systems together. I identify as an INTJ8. That's something I always say. I've been saying it consistently for almost a year now, almost a year. Um, I've been, as I've been thinking about challenging myself to embrace giftedness, um, I've been thinking about would I change that disclaimer to say, I identify as a gifted INTJ. I can't see myself doing that because it feels gross, but um, I, I have been curious about it. So if you're new to this project, this idea of pushing the INTJ and the eight together is just something I've, I've done, like I said, for almost a year. Um, and I'd be curious to see where the conversation or my movement in giftedness, how it will impact those disclaimers as I move forward. So in the text um, that I was reading from Gifts Differing, um, when I ran across that sentence about iconoclastic, 
you know, I was going to just read past it because I felt like I understood what the sentence meant, even though that word, um, iconoclastic, iconoclast, it's not a word that I've ever used. It's not a word that I've ever used. And I don't even think it's a word that I hear a lot. I have, I was familiar with the word, but I wouldn't have even been able to guess what it meant. I mean, I'm so, I'm that disconnected from that word. So I started to just keep reading and something was haunting me as I continued to read, like, go and look up the word, go and look up that word that feels important. So I put the book down. I came over to my computer. I Googled it and I first looked up iconoclastic and it said, I'm going to read that definition to you first. Sorry, you guys. Give me one second. Oh, here it is. Characterized by attack on cherished beliefs or institutions. I guess a situation. It's a, so it's an, it's an adjective. Iconoclastic is an adjective. And so whatever the thing is, the object is, this describes it. This word describes it in its, and characterized by attack on cherished beliefs or institutions. But that didn't feel like enough for me to really say I understood it, particularly as it related to that sentence. So then I went and looked up an iconoclast, like what's another derivative, what's a different derivative of that word? And so iconoclastic being the adjective, I looked up iconoclast. Um, and so the part of speech that it is, is a noun. And it is a person who attacks settled beliefs or institutions. A person who attacks settled beliefs or institution. And oh my goodness, just even reading that is giving me a tingly sensation because that is me. <laughs> it is so me, y'all. And so um, I liken that to another term that I learned a few years ago called a killjoy. And um, a killjoy is a person that doesn't accept popular treatments of concepts um, and it, po these popular treatments of concepts make us comfortable. We're just comfortable in the popular treatment of it. And a killjoy will come along and say, Hey, wait a minute. And we'll take the concept or the event and unpack it to, and unlayer it to its root, unlayer it to its root where you go, not make it up, but go, do you realize this is what's sitting on top underneath? That feel good, that feel good feeling that you have underneath it is you have this is located. So underneath it, you have this treatment or this belief system that drives the concept that drives your comfort. There's a treatment that drives the concept that then drives your comfort and being twice removed from the treatment, you may not realize or be aware that the treatment is there. And so a killjoy will just come and, oh, and expose it. And, you know, people don't really like killjoys. <laughs> you know, like I've, I always joke and say that my family, they don't like to go to the movies with me because I will uncover things inside of the movie that are um, 
so accepted culturally, and I'm not saying racial culture, but just so culturally accepted that when I begin to magnify that thing and I begin to open it up as problematic, initially my family would try to challenge me and say I was misinformed. I mean, it was a big to do. They don't do that now. They they pretty much respect that I have a deep sense of that. Um, uh, what's the word? Um, not emergent. Um, the etymology, the etymology of an event, of a concept, of a movement. Usually, etymology is thought thought of of as a word, but I'm saying in terms of what is the root of this thing. What is the origin, the origin of it? Even if this is how you're connected to it today, the origin of the thing is still true. You're just not aware of it. All right, I'm going to get off of that. So whether you call me or whether I call myself a killjoy or an iconoclast, I think it is the same. Um... I like iconoclast, and again, if if I'm saying it wrong, if I have something wrong here, you know, I always ask you guys to be a friend, send me a message, say, "Yo, you're an idea, you're off, you're off on this one." I'm always here for that because uh, I'd rather be informed than to be right. I'd rather be informed than to be quote unquote right. But as I understand it, this idea of really exposing and challenging and disrupting settled beliefs, beliefs that we have in our society that we just accept, that some of us not only accept it, we fight for it. And iconoclast is just not going to do that. And so one of the things, one of the ways I have um, given life back to myself really through this project is by the the naming of the concept of the matrix naming of the social world as a matrix as an as an entity that has a set of um in um um a set of components a set of linkages a set of intricacies that are all about preserving itself and if we look up across time and we've looked at what groups of people have been disadvantaged across time, you best understand that by looking at the matrix. Because the matrix is a system and systems theory says systems maintain themselves. So even when something new comes into the system, The system is designed by the nature of what a system is. The system will take that entry, that newness, and reconstitute it so that it doesn't interrupt the system. If at, at, at best, or at the least, it doesn't interrupt it. But what it could do is that very, that new thing that entered into the system could actually enhance the function of that system. And so the matrix, uh, I study, excuse me, I study systems theory, but I like to play around and loosely call it our social world, the matrix, um, because it has just helped me to understand who I am in the matrix. And 
I think it has just helped me to understand why I have had complications and challenges. So I want to come, I want to park this idea of iconoclastic and me being that and that resonating with me deeply that I'm a person that's going to interrupt settled beliefs and settled institutions. And every time I say that, there is a tingling that is going through my body that is like, ding, 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 you got it, this is it. That speaks to my core, that that's who I am. So I'm going to try to park that. I'm going to try to park that. And I want to talk a little bit about giftedness. Um, I might fall into a rabbit hole here, but if I do, hopefully at some point I can come back in another time and talk about this, link it to the iconoclast or the INTJ or the gifted INTJ is eight. So I don't really know where I'm going to go here, but right now I'm going to talk about giftedness. Okay. Now, um, I have been back exploring giftedness. Um, I don't fully know why that has surfaced for me. Like, I don't know in the last week or two. I don't really know why giftedness has come up for me. You know, the reason why usually when I'm on, when I get into like a, a season, a bubble in my life where I'm exploring a concept over days and weeks, I can typically pinpoint it to, oh, you had that encounter and that encounter made you think of this. I don't know. I do believe I woke up one day. My intuition was like, go look at giftedness again. So what I want to do is do three things right now. And you, you guys, I'm, I'm, I'm a little fumbly here because I don't, I already, it's like, I know I want to say a lot, but I don't know what to say. So just bear with me if it sounds weird on your end. Okay. Um, so what I, let, here's what I'm thinking right now. I kind of want to revisit to you what my understanding of giftedness has been for the past five years. And then I want to share with you an article that I ran across um, in the last five days, not five years, five days, that has reinforced my my historical understanding of giftedness over the past five years. So it's reinforced that, but it also has clarified it or has given me some newness to it. And then I want to talk about... Uh, the the eight gifted eight and why my heart coach questioned me about it and then crossing my fingers maybe I should talk about bringing them all together with the INTJ all right we'll see okay so giftedness as I have understood it over the past five years and I've said this to you guys several times in different episodes so those of you who followed this this is not going to be uh new for you but let me just restate it for my own benefit, if for, if for nothing else. There are five characteristics of giftedness. Now, let me pause. Let me back up a little bit. There are a number of different treatments about giftedness. And what I want to start doing is studying all of them. So just like with Carl Jung and the cognitive functions, then you have the Myers-Briggs, which is a derivative of that. And I think you have the BB model. That's a derivative of that. Like we all are somehow connected to Carl Jung's work. I think this is the same thing as giftedness. There are different treatments 
of giftedness. So if you are a person that studied giftedness and how I describe it doesn't align with your, your studying of it, let that be okay. Cause there are, there are different views and competing views on what that actually is. Okay. So my research and understanding of giftedness, there are five traits and it's believed that in order to really say that you're gifted, you should at least, um, be able to identify three of the five. And I was trying, I mentioned the five to you in the previous episode. I mentioned them. What I want to do is spend some time explaining them. Okay. So let me list them to you. Um, um, divergency, excitability, sensitivity, entelechy, and perceptivity. So I'll say it again, divergency, excitability, sensitivity, entelechy, and perceptivity are the five traits. All right, I'm not going to give them to you in order, uh, but let me do some reading. I'm reading from a text called, Can You Hear the Flowers Sing? For Gifted Adults, Can You Hear the Flowers Sing? That's what I'm reading. And this work is influenced by, let me give you the name of this person, um, Deidre Lovekey. Okay. All right. So let's go back down. Divergency. A preference for unusual, original, and creative responses in char- is characteristic of divergent thinkers. The positive side of the trait includes people who are often high achievers, innovative in a number of fields, task committed, self-starters, and highly independent. Many theoretical scientists, writers, artists, composers, and philosophers are divergent thinkers. Einstein, Freud, and the French Impressionists are examples of gifted adults successful in using their divergent thinking ability. Divergent thinking has positive social and emotional value. Gifted adults possessing this trait are able to find creative solutions to a wide variety of problems, including interpersonal problems, and are able to see several aspects of any situation. Whew. Several aspects of any situation. My, 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 that's so good. In an organization, they are often the idea people who bring challenge and enthusiasm to others. They find deep personal satisfaction in the development of new ideas. Divergent thinkers challenge stereotypes. Socially, they bring color to the lives of others who may use their example to find the courage to break the bonds of conformity and decrease the effects of prejudice. On the negative side, divergent thinkers encounter difficulty in situations in which group consensus is important. They are often dedicated to their own ideas and find it difficult to support ideas they find foolish. The usual rewards may not motivate divergent thinkers. In fact, they may ignore a reward system imposed by others to work on their own. In social situations, divergent thinkers may not fit in. Common common social rules, such as not criticizing others publicly or not disagreeing with one perceived by the majority to be influential, may be disregarded. 
The dilemma of the divergent thinker is one of maintaining identity in the face of pressure to conform. A highly divergent thinker is often a minority of one. If no one else hears the flowers singing, the divergent thinker may experience alienation and eventually an existential depression. You guys, as I was reading it, I could not help but to think about both the uh, eight the Enneagram 8 and the INTJ. So um, the Enneagram 8 it doesn't conform. Um, it's particularly, it doesn't conform, but it's, uh, and as is the INTJ 8. The difference with the Enneagram 8 is that we won't conform as it relates to power, right? Um, so our unwillingness to conform mostly is driven by a need to be in control of ourselves and to um, not be in control and to not ultimately, to ultimately not be vulnerable. The INTJ will not conform because the INTJ doesn't like to do anything that's foolish or ineffective or inefficient. So you have both of these. The Enneagram 8 is divergent and the INTJ um, is divergent but for different reasons according to those frameworks. But underneath both the INTJ and the Enneagram 8, they're both divergent thinkers, all right? We're going to pause that. I'm going to park, park that, all right? I'm going to move on to the next trait. Sorry, that's my computer, not my phone. That's my computer because I'm sitting next to my computer reading. Um, so the next trait of the gifted person um, of the five is excitability. I'm going to read that. High energy level, emotional reactivity, and high nervous system arousal characterize the trait of excitability. Although excitability and hyperactivity may seem to be similar, they are fundamentally different in that gifted adults with the trait of excitability are able to focus their attention and concentration for long periods of time to use their energy productively in a wide variety of interests and to do many things well. Um, these, and so they're juxtaposing that to people. I'll keep reading. I'll keep reading. These gifted adults enjoy the excitement of taking risks and meeting challenges. This risk taking is dissimilar to the to that found in mania or impulsivity in that gifted adults, a, uh, excuse me, in that the gifted adult, a, is aware of the consequences of the risk, b, takes risk in the form of challenges rather than reckless activities and C knows when to stop. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who has been diagnosed with um, bipolar depression. And so I was talking a lot about giftedness and she was saying so much of what you're saying, a lot of what you're saying, I understand it as mania when she's in a manic episode. And I think this last um sentence really mm, mm, captures the difference between mania um, and excitability. I'll read that sentence again. This risk-taking is dissimilar to that found in mania or impulsivity in that the gifted adult A is aware of the consequences of the risk. So there's an awareness of what the risk is. Sometimes when individuals who are experiencing a manic episode, they're not aware of the consequences of the risk. B, 
takes risks in the form of challenges rather than reckless activities. So the risk-taking isn't about recklessness. It's about being challenged and then see knows when to stop. And a person, um, as I understand it, a person who is in a manic episode does not know when to stop. I'm going to continue to read, you guys. The high energy level of these gifted adults allows them to produce prodigious, prodigiously in whatever most captures their interest. They often pave the way for others to follow with refinements of their innovative ideas. Many inventors and entrepreneurs have the trait of excitability. Thomas Edison and Leonardo da Vinci are examples of people who possess this trait. The trait of excitability has positive social and emotional value. Productivity and risk taking create new ideas and innovations. Excuse me. The mm, productivity and risk taking create new ideas and innovation. There is energy to spend on a variety of projects and personal concerns without the necessity of choosing whether to expand energy on work or self. Mm mm. To whether to expend energy on work or the self. Finally, these gifted adults know their feelings, act on the basis of these feelings, and are unafraid of the appropriate expression of feelings. And I'll tell you about that um, energy to work on multiple projects or to work extensively on projects. Um, that is something that I don't think is captured in the INTJ framework. Um, and so while uh, as INTJs can, uh, I could say the word perseverate, can stay focused on a, a project until they hit the level of creation that they want. Um, I don't think INTJs stay the course for perfection as um, other people might, um, accuse us of doing, but we will stay the course of creation, of value, of impact. Um, hold on. So some t like when I'm working on these essays and I'm, or the book idea, and I'm really trying to integrate the concepts, I become aware of how they do overlap. This is an example of how I think the um, INTJ doesn't capture a part of me. Um, I want to come back to the idea. Of ex I want to finish reading about excitability, but I found another article that treated excitability a little differently because when I've read this, this particular section of excitability, um, it didn't, I didn't really feel as connected to it just because number one, I don't, I don't fully see me as, uh, emotionally excited. And I feel that, um, for some reason, when I read this initially, it made me think about emotional excitability. And the other article talks about intellectual excitability. There are five types of excitability based on this other article. And I was like, whoa, there it is. Because I do have the extra energy. I no doubt have the extra energy. Um let me keep reading the article. On the negative side, gifted adults with this trait may find it difficult to self-regulate. Boredom and the need for stimulation, stimulation can produce a habit of constant activity. Some gifted adults may be unable to follow through on projects because they crave novelty. A, high cy a cycle of high interest and activity for a new venture followed by loss of interest when the novelty decreases 
and details must be addressed can leave others feeling frustrated and angry. In addition, some gifted adults may feel less satisfaction with what has been achieved. Their dilemma is one of always doing but feeling little gratification because others often reap the rewards accruing from the long-term development of their initial ideas. A chronic depression that triggers more activity may be the result. These gifted adults may know that the flower is singing, but may never have a chance to enjoy them. And my goodness, do I, I, I don't struggle with this as much, but I have experienced it. Like this thing that I've labored and I've created, and now you're going to go and you didn't have to labor in it and suffer through it. You now have the benefit of the thing that I have produced. And I often, you know, I've been challenged on this on a number of occasions. Did you produce that thing just for you or did you produce it for the community? And I don't know. (laughs) I don't know sometimes. I don't know. I don't know if I've, when I'm in that creative mode, I don't know if I'm producing for the sake of someone else. More than likely, I'm probably producing for me. And this is why I think, uh, I think this is one of the reasons why I want credit, you know, and this is why I give credit so that when I benefit from someone else's labor, it's like a recognition that you labored, that you produced something that I'm now able to use for my own benefit. And I thank you for laboring to do that. And so when people go, why do you need to do to get the credit? Because it's a recognition of the labor. So when I develop curriculum um, that I use from my school, I've already told you guys a number of people tried to threaten me to say that that curriculum, that they own the curriculum. Because they wanted it. They wanted to benefit from the curriculum that I created. Yeah, and then some other people say, well, that you should take that as a compliment. No, I don't need to be complimented in, 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 without... Profiting, And so I guess the question then becomes, to what extent of credit do I want? Now, if you're going to take the curriculum and profit off of it, um, that's, that's different. And so when you have people who are in positions of power, and this is the eight side of me coming up, and you're in positions of power, and you have access, you have a seat at different tables that I don't have access to. And then you want to take something I've created and it strengthens your access. It gives you a stronger seat at the table all while I don't have a seat at the table. Then no, I'm not excited about you taking something I've created um, without you giving me my proper compensation. And so um, I fought to not let them have access to the access to the curriculum and I won that battle because it was my creation but a friend of mine two of friends actually said two different friends um said I don't get it did you create that to help kids did you create that curriculum to help children and if you did then if somebody takes your curriculum and they're starting to they, they expand the sphere of how that curriculum is used. Aren't you helping more kids? Don't you, isn't that good enough? And I'm like, no, it's not. And one way to simply answer that is, 
I'm not just represent helping children. I'm a representation for kids. So I look at the work that I do now, and there are adults who said they can see the, the students of, it's not just a student of, of color. And I, I just don't like when they limit my impact on black kids. It's also students who have been um, misunderstood. I have a number of white kids who do the same thing things as the black children that they light up when I come around. I give them visibility. They feel understood. They feel of value. And so part of part of my work when I am a creator is I'm modeling to my young people what it means to be your most authentic, creative, powerful self. And if I allow the matrix to exploit me in my creativity, then what I'm in, in essence, telling kids, go and be great so you can, you too can be exploited. And I'm not going to give that message. So, <laughs> so I think this idea of excitability in the creation piece, of, I think what we create in our excitability in the innovation, in the entrepreneurship is so perfect. And I think it also speaks to how I have been challenged around, um, am I an innovator or am I an entrepreneur? I'm, I've, I've already resolved the fact that I'm an innovator more than I'm an entrepreneur. But sometimes being an innovator requires me to act as an entrepreneur so I can get that innovation to the table. But now I'm getting to the place at this stage of my life at 51 is I'm not even as driven to get my innovation to the table. And this is the eight part of me because I know at the end of the day that the people, I do not want people to take my innovation into the matrix that is just going to sustain itself. It will take that innovation. It will use my name, even when they do give me credit and will maintain a discrepancy in terms of who benefits and who doesn't. Um, the perfect example of it is how we're using the language of so uh, re um, restorative justice. It's a concept that really is about giving power to kids when they when they have quote unquote had behavior issues. Technically, restorative justice gives them the power to be visible, to be understood, to negotiate. And there are adults who are trying to use the language of restorative justice to bring kids into submission, to make them contrite, to make them comply, all while slapping this powerful concept of restorative justice on it. And I had an adult who tried to do that, tried to force me to get that student to be uh, contrite, to comply. And when I didn't do that, because I have another consideration, like I said, there's something else I'm considering. That adult tried to like slap me with a term terminology of, well, isn't that restorative justice? No, sweetie, you don't understand restorative justice. I, and this is what I said to, to the adult. I leaned in, I said, restorative justice for whom? Is it for you? Is it because it's you it's the justice piece. <laughs> you <laughs> who's restored in an element of justice? You because if it's the child being restored for justice, that's not about um, telling that child to be contrite, to come and apologize to you. Restorative justice is not about getting a child to apologize to you because you were uncomfortable with the child's quote unquote behavior. 
All right, I'm on a, in a rabbit hole. Let me try to come back. I already know I'm going over an hour. Uh, you know what? I might have to do this. Let's do this in two parts. I'm going to have to find a nice way to break this up. A lot of times when I do two-parters, that second part just doesn't just doesn't get a lot of love. And this is in this podcast and my other podcast. I don't know. But the INTJ series that I did, um, well, even parts two and three, even though they were widely uh, circulated, they still didn't get as much circulation as part one. So I don't really know. But we're going to go. I'm going to keep going um, and for the next trait. One second. So the next trait is sensitivity. I'm going to keep reading from that article. Can you hear the flowers singing for gifted? Can you hear the flowers singing issues for gifted adults? Okay, we're at sensitivity. A depth of feeling that results in a sense of identification with others characterizes the trait of sensitivity. Gifted people from deep gifted people form deep attachments and react to the feeling tone of situations. They think with their feelings. People who are highly sensitive make commitments to other people and to social causes. They can be enthusiastic and intensely single-minded about their dedication. Poets, investigative enthusiasts, excuse me, investigative reporters, Peace Corps workers, and political and religious leaders are often gifted in sensitivity. Examples of such people include St. Francis of Assisi, Elizabeth Blackwell, Emily Dickinson, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, and Virginia Woolf. People gifted with the trait of sensitivity find positive social and emotional benefit in their deep concern for the needs and rights of others, their empathy for the feelings of others, and their desire to help even at significant cost to themselves. These gifted adults may be unusually aware of the feeling tone of situations and of the more sensual aspects of the environment, such as color and shading. They are often aware of their own shortcomings. Some gifted adults feel a sense of unity with the cosmos, an experience of a universal sharing of self. Adults gifted with sensitivity tend to be highly moral people concerned with giving and doing what is right for others. A lot of that I see, um, a lot of that I see in the Enneagram around two, Enneagram type two, four, and a little bit of one. And so, um, that oneness, that connectedness, I don't see that in the Enneagram for me as a type eight, and I don't see it as an INTJ. However, my sensitivity is related to justice, um, um, around power. I always talk about, I have an intellectual sensitivity. So when we consider sensitivity, um, to concepts and ideas, then yes, I have, I definitely have that. But when it comes to sensitivity to other people, no, unless it is connected to a principle, a principle, P-L-E, um, or a system, right? But mainly, let's say a principle that I'm sensitive in that regard and can be thrown off center emotionally when that principle is in violation. But it's not the people as much as, as, as it is the principle. Um, so that's the, that's the way I would connect to sensitivity. I would say out of the five traits, that is not the one I am the most 
um, connected to, but there is a sensitivity. But here's, here's why I had to come back and reconsider sensitivity for me. Because when those, when I'm, when those principles are in violation, particularly not all principles. So I'm not sensitive to all principles, but the, here it is. It's coming to me right now. The principles that are related to my INTJ-ness around effectiveness and efficiency and innovation and the principles that are related to my eightness as related to um, autonomy, um, uh, um, vulnerability, safety, you know, not wanting to be controlled, not wanting to be abused, not anyone having power over me. When those principles, the principles of my INTJ 8 are violated, I become emotionally unbound. I want to be really honest. And so I had a friend of mine once who was like, I see a very emotional side of you. And at first I didn't know how to take that because I know I knew for a fact I don't move throughout the, out the world emotionally. But then I had to rethink, what does that mean? First of all, as an INTJ8, we've already talked about it. My auxiliary and my tertiary functions are connected. Thinking and feeling, they're actually connected. So this idea that I don't have emotions or feelings is, first of all, insane. I'm always saying that. That's insane. The, what, what is distinct for me as an INTJ is that I don't make decisions based on those emotions. But I do make decisions based on the principle of how things work in order to be productive, in order to get the particular results that I want. And so it is a subtle difference, but it's significant. And when I find myself in environments that are violating those, those principles relating to production, uh, prosperity for all people, and the um, and the the advancement of people who have been at the margins. When I find those principles in violation, and I become unbound, only and here's the time if I can't take action. Normally, when those principles are in violation, my int my intj eightness works together, and I take action. But when I can't take action. For a number of reasons, <laughs> I've become unbound. And what I'm excited about in this reflection right now, I'm having a breakthrough for myself, that when I've become unbound, I want to start capturing that right now. And instead of going, I wonder what's going on, I want to say, what principle is in violation? From this moment forward, when I find myself becoming unbound emotionally, I want to shave off about three days of suffering. And go right to the fact to say, you're in Idom, talking to myself, there's a principle that of justice or of advancement and progress. There is a principle in violation right now. Get to that principle. Find out what that principle is. And now let's think strategically about how you're going to take action. And sometimes because I'm a, uh, because I'm an auxiliary TE, TE standing for extroverted thinking because I'm an auxiliary thinker. I'm going to take action based on my dominant function. And a lot of times as an introverted intuition, there are things I just don't know. There are things I just don't know. And so 
I don't, excuse me, let me put it, say it differently. There are things I don't consciously know. I don't consciously know. And if it's not something I've developed a network, an internal network for automacy, for automatic action, then my TE is like, what, 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 I mean, what do I do? And so I'm really, really excited about this conversation around sensibility. Let me quickly wrap up uh, the negative side of sensitivity. Sensi- I said sensibility. I meant sensitivity. On the negative side, these gifted adults may not understand that others do not feel so deeply or intensely or that others may have different priorities. They may be very intolerant of the needs of others when they perceive those needs to be superficial. Adults gifted in sensitivity may be so sensitive that others may hesitate to share problems with them. In fact, other people may believe that the gifted adult experiences their pain more intensely than they do, and they may be feel they may feel robbed of their own feelings. These gifted adults may learn to guard their vulnerability while still remaining sensitive to others, to continue caring in the face of rejection, and to moderate emotional responsiveness so that they feel with rather than feel for. The risk is that they will become isolates who avoid relationships that can nurture them. They hear the flowers singing, feel a unity with the universe, and want everyone else to hear the song as well. And so I don't, I don't relate to that as it relates to people. But if I take the people side out of that and put in principle, that is me all day long. I'd be curious what the author would say about me modifying that a little bit. All right. Perceptivity. Perceptivity, an ability to view several aspects of a situation simultaneously, to understand several layers of self within another, and to see quickly to the core of an issue, are characteristics. Mm-mm, yeah. Our characteristic of the trait of perceptivity. These gifted adults are able to understand the meaning of personal symbols and to see beyond the superficiality of a situation to the person beneath. Skilled at understanding motivations, they may be able to help others to understand themselves. Adults gifted with perceptivity are those who can hear the flowers singing within others not yet aware of their own gifts. Their intuition and ability to understand several layers of feeling simultaneously help them to assess people and situations rapidly. In fact, they are often skilled at sensing the incongruency between exhibited social facades and real thoughts and feelings. Another aspect of perceptivity concerns the recognition of and need for truth. Social facades displayed by others may seem to this gifted adult to be sort of a lie. Adults gifted in this way detect and dislike falsehood and hypocrisy. I'm thinking about a cognitive function, y'all, that I would, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> but there's a cognitive function that I think often for me as an INTJ, I often see them as doing a facade and doing a public performance that's not congruent with what's at the heart of them. Um People, I'm going to keep reading, people who are gifted at seeing often seem to have a touch of magic about them. Religious and political leaders, philosophers, creative therapists, writers, and poets may be especially gifted with perceptivity. Jane Austen, Langston Hughes, Anne Hutchinson, William Shakespeare, and Henry David Thoreau are all examples. 
Positive social and emotional correlates of the trait of perceptivity include the ability of these gifted adults to view their own behavior somewhat objectively, to assess their own as well as others' motivations, and to be and to base their responses on perceptions of underlying dynamics. They are aware not only of what their own needs are, but also of the necessity of avoiding internal stress by learning to use their perceptions to know what they truly want. Often they will decide to do what is best for themselves despite the disapproval of others. I've often in the past read that because I've read this many times. I've also often read perceptivity and I've linked it to intuition. So much of this is about seeing things, multiple angles at the same time, being able to understand what's at the root of a situation beyond what is being projected in others and in self, which of the ability to step away from the self, look at the self objectively, being able to see the motives of a person, like all of that to me connects to my intuition. So I've never really struggled when I read this because I'm like, yeah, perceptivity, um, intuition, yeah, introverted intuition, it's, that's really the same. I think this particular um, reading, though, leans more into emotions the emotions at the root and not what's on the surface and that's fine but perceptivity isn't just about emotions um, perceptivity can be also as relates to systems in that I'm a systems thinker I'm able to see multiple parts of a system at the same time I'm able to see the root of that system I'm able to see um, implications of that system all at the same time at the same time, and that becomes really difficult. And so I think, I wonder if how they're looking at this giftedness is through the average person who uh, uh, is probably more people-oriented and not really looking at this person maybe as a TJ, right? So here I see an overlap between my intuition, a connection with my intuition and the Myers-Briggs, but it's not this treatment of giftedness really isn't tapping tapping into my giftedness as it relates to the TE um, part of me. It's connecting to the NI introverted intuition, maybe a little bit of the FI, but not the TE component. And I think that that's that's another example how even if I were going to use giftedness as the primary identity for myself, it would leave out the thinking side of me. All right. Um, let me talk about um, the negative side. On the negative side, this trait can present difficulties in interpersonal relationships because others unaware of what the gifted adults see so clearly feel both vulnerable and threatened. For the gifted adult, seeing several layers of a person may be confusing. It may be difficult to pair the response obtained with the situation, uh, with what the situation seemed to indicate was required. The more discrepancy between the inner self and the outer face, the more uncomfortable the gifted adult may feel. And that is so, 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 so true. Um, I'm able to see that gap. I'm able to see that gap between the um, what's presented and what's at the root. But this, again, is talking specifically about people. 
I'm very, this is one of the challenges and one of the excitements that I have about the organization that I'm in right now. The organization is saying it has an espoused commitment, has an espoused vision and mission statement, but it doesn't have, but it does, (laughs) I'm going to tell you later why I'm laughing, but it doesn't have the, um, it doesn't have the legs to what it's saying it's doing, not at a deep level. And I see the gap between the mission, what's projected out, the structure, and some of the day-to-day practices within the structure. I see that at a heightened level. And I think people who work in that system are only going to be successful when they are able to um, nullify that sensation, not being able to see it. And I think that this is where being gifted inside of a system that is trying to maintain distributions, how that can be challenging, uh, distributions, maintain historical distributions of power, how that can be problematic. All right, I'm going to get to the last one. And this one was a, this one was hard for me to understand initially. Um, I have it now. But we'll see how I'm able to connect it to the INTJ-8 Untelike. I'm going to continue to read from the article. Untelike, from the Greek word for having a goal, Untelike bespeaks a particular type of motivation, inner strength, and vital, vital force directing life and growth to become all the self is capable of being. Adults gifted in Antelike are highly attractive to others who feel drawn to openness, warmth, and closeness. Being near someone with this trait gives others hope and motivation to achieve their own self-actualization. Teachers, therapists, physicians, and social reformers may be among those so gifted. Examples include Helen Keller, Carl Rogers, and Eleanor Roosevelt. People gifted in Antelike bring deep feelings to a relationship. By spontaneously expressing feelings, they encourage others to do so as well. They are an example of overcoming obstacles, and their continuing support and interest encourage others to grow. They not only hear the flowers singing, but invite others to hear them too. People gifted in Antalaki are capable of creating golden moments of friendship. Those special times when two people are truly their best selves and able to share on a deep level. Gifted adults may find sources of rare intimacy. However, they may also find an overwhelming number of people who want contact but have little to offer in return. They may feel vulnerable to and intrude intruded on by the demands of others who may feel cheated that the promise implied in the initial sharing cannot continue. This is so true. The dilemma of these gifted adults is to find ways to nurture the self through others while avoiding the expenditure of vital personal resources on others' needs. The risk is anxiety about requests from others and avoidance of closeness in interpersonal relationships. Whoa, my word. So this one is so good because on a number of levels, this does not speak to me as an INTJ nor as an ain't. Um, so I do 
have the ability of inspiring people, which is really weird, right? Um, so I can, I can, I can inspire them. I can speak life into them. And the best way to explain it is this sentence here. Um, uh, here it is. Oh, they not only hear the flowers singing, but invite others to hear them too. So there is a connection that I have, like with this deep truth, this, uh, I do have a connection with, um, I don't know if I would call it optimism because as a, in what's the word? Uh, what was the word? Inconclastic, iconoclast, or as a, um, as a killjoy, that a killjoy is not considered to be optimistic, right? So I am going to have to spend some time thinking about when I'm a killjoy and when I am uh, operating off of this idea of, 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 of optimism. And I ultimately what I think of it is me, the spiritual side of me. I'm connected to what I call spirit. And I believe through spirit, anything is possible. Anything is beautiful. I really, really believe that. Um, but I do believe in the matrix. The matrix puts up barriers to access that truth, barriers to access that beauty. And so then that's when I become the killjoy because then I'm going to name that. I'm going to name the very thing that's going to keep you from being at your best, right? So I look at Antelike as something very spiritual for me. Um, and I'm able to, and, and, and that spirituality gives me life. It is irrational. It is not a, it is not the rational side of me, which it doesn't, I can't connect it to the INTJ part of me, but I also can't connect it to the eight part of me because the eight part of me is solely looking at power and control and not being vulnerable. So this Antelike part of me, it exceeds that. I cannot see Antelike in INTJ-ness, nor can I see that part of me in the Enneagram, but it's there all the same, right? It is the spiritual part. And you know, I recently, um, was listening to some content that talked about how if any, I think they were juxtaposed. Was it, was it the book? It may have been the book gifts differing. And, and it was looking at NT, I don't know. It was somewhere, but talking about how INTJs compared to ISTJs might be more open to the spiritual mysteries because of the NI dominance, right? Because of the introverted intuition, that part of me. So in that way, I could connect it to INTJ in this, but you don't hear anyone in the INTJ community talking about, um, wonder, um, about this optimism, this ultimate goodness, this ultimate truth. It doesn't, but I, I've never said this before. I've never said it out loud and I've never said it to myself that underneath my push to, for people to support people at the margins is this idea that we all have goodness, that we all have goodness and we all have the right to be our best selves. And as an eight, I see the threats of anything that impedes that. And as an INTJ, I can analyze it and I can 
structure it. And so I just, I'm going to close here. I, I feel like there's more to say, but I want to go back to the conversation of when my heart coach, and she just asked me this, not this, today is Sunday, not this past Wednesday, but two Wednesdays ago. And she said, what is the relationship between your giftedness and your, the eight side of you? And I was like, huh, I don't know. But I think the idea of being all of that, everybody can be divergent. Everybody can have some excitabilities and all perceptivity, all of that. But the gifted part is that heightened state of it. It is heightened. Um, it's in the tails. You know, you hear me talk about the bell curve. It's not in the realm of quote unquote, what's normal. So it is a heightened, I'm going to use my boss's terminology, abnormal state of understanding. Doesn't mean we're out of control with it, but it is heightened higher than other people can experience it. And I think for that reason, for that reason, I want to talk about giftedness more because it is talking about this heightened state. For me, that's an essential thing to remember when I'm in conversations, desperately, desperately wanting people to get what I'm saying to understand. Um, and that's kind of what they said about Antelike. Other people can't give that to you. They don't understand it. So it's not like they're withholding it because they're trying to be mean. They don't have it to offer. But the flip side of that, and this is something I learned. I wrote a poem called The Sum of My Parts. Once I got to the place where I realized people could not give me what I needed in the sum total of me, in the sum part of me, I learned to reduce myself to parts as I'm interacting with people. So when I'm interacting with Sally, I'm going to give Sally this part of me. When I'm interacting with Tom, I'm going to give Tom this part of me because Tom and Sally cannot handle the fullness of me. They can't, and I'm unfulfilled. When I open myself up in the fullness of me, Tom and Sally can't fulfill me. Even if I put them together, (laughs) they couldn't fulfill me. And so, I have learned to scale back and to be comfortable in the part, the part that Tom can connect to me on. I learned to be okay with that and to connect with Tom on that part. The part that Sally can give me, I learned to be okay with that part. And I learned to give Sally that part of me. But here's the challenge. And this is what I just read in that section. I'm going to read it to you guys again. Hold on. There are actually two sentences here under the IntelliKey part. Oh, man. Okay, I had to find it. That's the two sentences. There are two sentences. They may feel vulnerable to and intruded on by the demands of others who may feel cheated that the promise implied in the initial sharing cannot continue. So people who encounter us who have that ability or people who encountered me um and they encounter me in the sum total of my parts, once I start learning to, um, I don't want to say strategize, but adapt, that's a better word. Once I start adapting to what they're able to give in the relationship, they feel cheated that they're not getting all of me. And I've just, it took me, 
I couldn't understand that. Like the first hurdle that I had was to get to the place where I was okay with just, okay, you can only, you can only handle, you can only give me, you can only engage with a part of me. And it took me a long time to be okay with that. And once I got to a place where I'm like, okay, you can only engage with a part of me. What I had to learn to do is realize the frustration isn't the fact that they could just give me a connected a part of me. It's the fact that I'm wide open in all of me. And I know that I'm not able to engage with this person. I'm not able to have, um, I'm not able to be fulfilled or connected to in all of me. So once I I had to first learn that it was okay that the person was only given connecting to a part of me, then I had to learn how to figure out how to say, isolate a part of myself to connect with that person on the area that they connect with me on. So if a person just like to read, they love reading and they, um, they don't want to do long walks under the sky or they don't want to, um, ah, I can't think of another example. They don't want to go and do karaoke singing with me, right? That's fine. Then I'm going to say reading. Let's, that's our relationship. But because you know that I'm multi-dynamic, I'm multifaceted, you're frustrated now with just the reading part of me. You want more, even though there's no room for you to learn how to give me more. And it would be one thing if these people would say, you know, I don't know how to do all that you are, but I would, I, I want to be in the relationship. I want to be in relationship to the full of you. And I want to learn how to do that. And if I have to grow in the process, I'm here for that. They don't do that at all. <laughs> so, um, but I have found them to like that, this whole line, they feel cheated, um, that the promise implied in the initial sharing cannot continue. It is so, so, so true. I have never seen this written any other place. And then the second one, the dilemma of these gifted adults is to find ways to nurture the self through others while avoiding the expenditure of vital personal resources on others' needs, right? So I, I have to be able to take care of myself without taxing you and making you feel like you can't give me what I need, right? I had to learn that. Um, and so it's just fascinating. So, so I think <laughs> that when my heart coach asked me about the gifted INTJ stuff, I think the part that in all of the four, um, traits, the perceptivity, the divergency, um, excitability and sensitivity, all four of those, I could find a way to connect to either the INTJ um, or the eight or both of them. I was able to do that. I may have to finagle words, right? I had to say, well, maybe if we look more at systems and thinking than at people and feelings, then yes, this fits perfectly. But the way it's written about feelings and people, no, it's not really connected to the INTJ part of me. But the moment I'm, I can tweak some of those words, everything else about that trait, uh, relates to me. But the thing about it is that according to this particular theory, I only need to connect deeply to three of those traits. I don't have to connect to all five of them. And so without finagling any words, the, the traits that I connect to without any finagling would be ontology, perceptivity, divergency, um, and even excitability, as it, especially as it relates to the other article. Um, and I think I think the idea of sensitivity, um, I think I am sensitive, but it's related to, like I said, uh, principles more so than it is people. Um, so anyway, 
I think the conclusion for me in this reflection, because I feel like there's still so much I want to talk about and I still feel like there's meaning making needed. I need to make more meaning. I'm not done yet. But for now, I think my takeaway is going to be that in the giftedness is just the expansive nature of a trait. And I don't think INTJ-ness or eightness deals with expansiveness. Intensity. Now the eight, the eight part of me helps to explain the intense part of me, but it's only intense as it relates to a particular area. It is not global intense or across the spectrum. Um, and the INTJ part of me speaks to the complexity of me, my thinking, but not always the intensity. And so I think the giftedness is more global in the intensity and the complexity there it is the this is it perfectly the intensity and the complexity of me expanding beyond beyond the the range of intjness or eightness it's more global and when my heart coach i keep trying to close here when my heart coach asked me about being gifted in eight. If, if eights are able to see the threat of a situation, to see the threat of their vulnerability, uh, to see the threat of power, to see an issue of control, being a gifted eight means I see it at a times five. I see it times five. Uh, what One of the articles I read that said, talked about giftings is that we see special problems, not typical problems. We see special problems before other people. So the fact that these problems are unique is one thing. And the fact that we see them so far out. I used to call them giants. So far out, no one else sees them until they do. And usually people will come back to me. Almost always people come back to me and say, I didn't see it when you said it. I see it now. And one of the reasons why I fight to maintain relationships with those people is because now I've proven myself in that area. Because when I meet a new person and I start talking about a special problem that's so far out there looking at me like, yeah, whatever. But people, once they get to know me, they go, I had a the guy who's working with me just in two months. He says, I don't see it. I said something. He said, I don't see it. But your intuition has never failed you. I know, I know you see it. I don't see it yet, but I know it's there because I know you're picking up on it. And wow, you know what I mean? And that doesn't come initially in my relationships with people. So I don't know. I feel a little more confident about the giftedness, just working all of this through. But I think we treat in our society, we conflate giftedness from with talent and then with brightness. Because you can be bright and not gifted. And you can be gifted and not bright. Oftentimes they can, like I said, they connect, but they are very different. And so I don't, I, I don't identify. I don't identify as gifted because I don't identify as bright. And I might, I can, I can identify as talented, but in very specific ways. And when it, and as it relates to my work, I do believe I have a particular talent as it relates to my work, but that's just a part of me. That's not the sum total me. That's not the sum total me. And so, um, I don't know. I feel better. I don't have a powerful way to end this reflection. Because it's just, it's good for me. I'm having a moment of like, I'm, I'm exhaling like, 
I get it. I get it. (laughs) I get it. So anyway, if this reflection has had any value for you, please give it a heart. If this conversation about giftedness um, and all of the five traits or any of the five traits, if they connect to any of the conversations, oh my goodness, any of the conversations you've had in the world, please take this link and share it out. The reason why I just said, oh my goodness, is because I forgot about the initial word. What was in the initial word? Iconoclast. If an I, that's what, okay, I do have to read that to you guys. One second. I'm going to end it here. I started this reflection on talking about the iconoclast. And that sentence is, um, what was the sentence in this book? I'm now reading and back to gifts differing. Um, intuition gives them, talking about the introverted intuition supported by thinking, INTJs. Um, intuition gives them an iconoclastic imagination and an unhampered view of the possibilities. I, If I see the possibilities and the way of disrupting settled beliefs and settled truths as an institution, at, um, at the institutional level, if I see that as an INTJ rather, what do I see when I'm a gifted INTJ? Right. And that whole unsettledness, excuse me, unsettled, uh, excuse me, the settled beliefs and settled truths. That's what the eight does. The eight is not going to conform to typical systems just because other people believe it, just because those institutions are there. The eight is not going to do that. So that's a relatedness between the, that's the, uh, intuition part of me, the thinking part of me, the eight part of me. And I think, I don't know if the giftedness is located here, but I will read on the next page. I want to give this to you. Excuse me. On the page before that, when it's listing the things that the INTJ and the INFJ have in common, the last trait, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, the ninth trait that's listed, the last one that's listed here is this. Introverted intuitive types, INTJ and INFJs, are gifted at their best with the fine insight into the deeper meaning of things and with a great deal of drive. And I think that's the intensity part at a level that most people cannot relate to. They do not understand. Thank you all for listening. If my moving about in this reflection has uh, caused some randomness in you, I'd love to hear it. You can find me on my website at yournidom.wordpress.com. You can also find me on Twitter, yournidom1, Facebook, yournidom, and YouTube, yournidom. Let me give you your assignment. Hold on. I feel like I've asked this question before. I don't remember what episode it was, and I don't remember in what arrangement and what was the way I delivered the question, but I'm going to give it to you in context of this conversation. What is a part of you that's essential to you? It makes so much sense to you, but you have a hard time projecting it out to the world. It's a part of you that you know exists, but you have a hard time sharing it with others. And I think I want to scale back what part of you that exists, you have a hard time accepting it within yourself. And I'm not talking about the negative sides of us. Right? We, I think as people committed to personal growth and impact and all of that, I think we're 
always looking at the parts of us that need to be refined and improved, right? But I'm talking about the part of you that is already refined. It's already good, but for whatever reason, you have a hard time accepting it within yourself. And sweetie, if you can't accept it within yourself, you certainly cannot project it out. So I think that those are two separate questions. What is a part of you that you have a hard time accepting for yourself? And then the second part is you struggle with. If once you've accepted this part of you, you have a hard time sharing it with the world. Of course, I'm going to ask you to consider questions like why? How, what is that related to the, uh, how is it related to the matrix or the social world around you? Is sometimes we don't have the right models around us to see what does it look like to, to be that part of us out loud, openly out loud. We don't know what it looks like. Sometimes we don't have reinforcements. We don't have anybody to encourage us, to remind us. I just had to tell a friend of mine the other day, I need you to hold me accountable to that person that I say that I am. The things that I say that I want to be. I need you to hold me accountable to that. Oftentimes, oftentimes people hold us accountable to the person that they think that we should be. They hold us accountable to their values, their vision, their conviction, and they fail to hold us accountable to that which we say we want, what we believe. And so I told a friend of mine, I said, I need you to hold me accountable to that which I say that I am committed to, to the person I say I am. And when you see me going off center, please, I need you to hold me accountable to that. Oftentimes we don't have that in that person, we don't have anybody that's going to reinforce us and support us in who we are, who we want to be. And so I would, I think that's one of the reasons why it's hard for us to accept these, these good parts of us. It's hard to project it. We don't have models. We don't have a support system and we don't have an accountability system, which I guess all of that can be interwoven. You guys, it's been a pleasure hanging out with you. It's been a pleasure hanging out with you. Until I come back, be well. Bye.